0: If you would, please open your Bibles <coughs> to our passage for today. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold here. Uh, please open up your Bibles to our passage for today, which is Matthew 15, 29 through 16:12. <coughs> Again, that's Matthew 15, verse 29, through Matthew 16, verse 12. A couple of weeks ago, I said that there are some people whose conversion can surprise you. And again, it really shouldn't be this way. After all, salvation is completely and utterly a work of God. It's entirely of grace. And this means that really anyone is capable of salvation. And yet there are some people whose lives before Christ are so wretched, people who in their unbelief are so entirely sold out to some kind of worldly philosophy or some kind of sin that you just don't think that they could ever possibly change. And then one day they do. They suddenly affirm the truth of God's Word. They even recognize the authority of God's Christ and acknowledge the effects of His saving work on the cross. They admit their own sinfulness. They confess it to God and ask Him for forgiveness. And then, just like that, they repent. They turn away from their former manner of life and they follow Jesus. Their lives are transformed. Now, to be sure, this isn't to say that they suddenly become entirely new people overnight, different people. They still struggle with many of the sins that they've brought with them from their former manner of life, but even still, their attitude towards those sins change. They're not content with them anymore. They want to be rid of them. They want to have them put away so that they can experience the joy of knowing Christ unhindered. They're different. We met one of these people a couple of weeks ago. In the account that occurs just before today's passage, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus not only recognizing His messianic authority, but actually trusting in it. She expresses faith in God's Christ. In confessing her unworthiness, she begs Him for mercy. For Jesus' disciples, this would have been completely unprecedented. Uh, A Canaanite woman living in the region of Tyre and Sidon would have been one of the very last people that they could have ever expected to experience the blessing of God's Messiah. And yet, by the end of the story, she does. She believes in Jesus, and so Jesus answers her request and heals her daughter. Now you've probably experienced this before. You've known people whose conversion, maybe their testimony after their conversion, it shocked you. But what about the other way around? Have you ever known someone whose unbelief has shocked you? What I mean is, have you ever known someone who really seems like they should have believed? And then they didn't. Maybe they grew up in a Christian home. Who knows? Maybe they were even a pastor's kid, so they grew up going to church, sitting in Sunday school classes, memorizing Bible verses, actively serving in youth group. I mean, they knew the Bible inside and out. They were absolutely saturated with biblical teaching. And then as they got older, nothing ever seemed to come of it. They never expressed any sort of personal faith In Jesus Christ. Maybe they just became a nominal church goer. Like they kept attending church, but there never seemed to be any sort of vibrancy in their walk. Church just sort of became their social club. You know, that's where their circle of friends was. So they kept going, but they never seemed to express any real interest in Jesus. Or maybe they just walked away from Christianity entirely. They stopped attending church. They stopped pretending any sort of interest or allegiance to Christ. They just give up. Or maybe, and this sometimes happens too, maybe they actually became incredibly religious, but in all the wrong ways. They started to fall into some really weird doctrinal errors, and then they became increasingly hostile to those who didn't share their views on the scripture, such that before too long, they became completely isolated from the church. They, ex- they, they expressed some kind of faith, but that faith became unrecognizable from true Christianity. They would still claim to be Christians, but their doctrines were so outside the norm that it was still apparent they abandoned their faith. Again, have you ever encountered someone like this? Someone who seemed to have every reason to believe, and then they didn't. Have you ever wondered how that could happen? I mean, again, that can be a a pretty perplexing thing to witness. Have you ever wondered what causes that? Well, if you have, then you should be pretty interested in today's passage. Because in today's passage, Jesus is going to show us one of the reasons for this kind of unbelief, this religious unbelief. There are multiple factors that can lead to religious unbelief. And Matthew has actually spent a significant amount of time in his gospel identifying and explaining those factors. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained that a focus on worldly things can lead some people to abandon the truth, saying, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that's one factor that can lead to this, just a love for worldly things. Fear of man is another factor that we've seen can lead a person to reject the truth of the gospel. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned the crowds against the fear that comes from peer pressure, saying, "...enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few." And as he sent his disciples out to proclaim the gospel in Galilee, he told them, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So clearly, fear of man was one factor that was leading religious people to reject Jesus in this gospel. Jesus' message was unpopular. It was outside the norm. And this meant that there was a cost that came to following Jesus. That cost led some religious people to think twice about accepting his message. Religious pride was still another factor that led religious people to reject Jesus' teaching. We saw this point demonstrated clearly back in Matthew 11. There Jesus said, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Jesus didn't fit Israel's religious expectations. Again, what he said was outside the norm. But because people had become proud in their religion, they stood in judgment over him and rejected him for not fitting to their preconceived notions of the Scriptures rather than learn from him. So that was another factor behind religious unbelief that Matthew has highlighted in this Gospel. So again, there's multiple factors that are contributing to this kind of unbelief throughout this Gospel. And yet, if we were to take all these factors and look at them together, we would see that there's yet one common denominator behind them all, and that is Israel's religious leaders. Jesus' teaching contradicted the teaching of Israel's religious leaders. And that is what had made that teaching outside the norm. And they were the ones that had created this culture of fear that made it so that if anyone would break from that kind of teaching, then they would be ostracized by their family and friends. That's where this fear of man came from. In fact, they were even the ones who in their pride sat in judgment over Jesus and told the people, he doesn't conform to what we say, the scriptures say, and so you need to reject him. In fact, you'd better reject him or else. They were the stumbling block for the religious in Israel. They were the ones that helped to produce the factors that led to Israel's unbelief. In fact, in those moments where the truth of Jesus' messianic identity were so crystal clear that the crowds were even beginning to recognize Jesus without their help, like after the healing of the two blind men in Matthew 9 or after the healing of the blind and mute demoniac in Matthew 12. They're the ones who are there to immediately jump in and say he casts out demons by the power of the devil. They, the religious leaders, They're the birds that snatch away the seed that's been sown in the heart of Jesus' listeners. They actually are the instruments that Satan is using to blind Israel to the truth of Jesus. There's really one of the central themes in Matthew. Matthew is, is writing to Jewish Christians who are confused by their brethren's unbelief. And Matthew tells them that the nation's religious leaders are actually at the root of this unbelief. The very men who are supposed to guide Israel into the truth, they were the ones that were blinding the people and shutting them out of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if we're to ask this question in Matthew, what causes religious unbelief? Then the answer is, always comes back to the nation's religious leaders. They were the reason why the only time that Jesus ever encountered the kind of faith that he was looking for, it was coming from a Roman centurion or a Canaanite woman and not from the children of Israel. But what was it about these men that was so deadly? How were they able to so effectively shut down Israel's ability to respond to Jesus when they, of all peoples, actually should have been the most likely to accept him. What was it that led them, allowed their influence to lead the people into religious unbelief at such catastrophic levels? In today's passage, Jesus has one final confrontation with the religious leaders in Galilee. And at the conclusion of this confrontation, he warns his disciples about the poison that these leaders spread. The warning essentially summarizes what it is that Jesus found so dangerous about these men. It explained where the corrupt influence that held Galilee captive spiritually, where that influence came from. Well, what was this poison? Let's go ahead and find out. Let's begin by reading the passage together. Matthew 15, 29 through 16, 12. Matthew says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they were put at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves and the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There are three different sections in today's passage, but the first two sections really should be grouped together. So we'll look at those together first, then we'll look at the third separately. These two sections are found in verses 29 to 38 of chapter 15 and verse uh, 39 of chapter 15 through chapter 16 verse 4. And what we see in these two sections is a tale of two vastly different responses to Jesus' ministry. Once again, the first response occurs in verses 29 to 38 of chapter 15. And what we see here is overwhelming Gentile belief. Once again, Matthew writes, he says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves you had? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. The section begins with Jesus leaving Tyre and Sidon and traveling to the Sea of Galilee where these crowds gather to bring their sick to Jesus and Jesus heals the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. Now Matthew isn't explicit in saying where this happens, at least not as explicit as Mark is in his Gospel, but Mark says that this all occurs in the Decapolis, which is this conglomeration of cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee that was dominated by Greek and Roman influences. Essentially, this was a Gentile area. And while Matthew doesn't state this point explicitly, it's still implied in verse 31, when he says that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, the healthy, uh, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing. He says, "And they glorified the God of Israel." So the crowds aren't just glorifying God, they're glorifying the God of Israel specifically. And this seems to imply that this is not necessarily the God that they would normally recognize as their God. This is the God of another nation. This is the God of Israel. And of course, this is exactly what we would expect of a crowd gathered in a region like the Decapolis, which again is where Mark says Jesus did these things when this happened. Therefore, it would seem that Matthew is attempting to indicate this point as well. Jesus is outside of Israel. He's ministering in a Gentile region. So what we see here is that Jesus heals the Canaanite woman's daughter in verse 28. But then after that, he leaves Tyre and Sidon to go on to yet another Gentile area. This one, some 50 miles south, closer to Galilee, but still on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from places like Capernaum and Nazareth. He and his disciples could not find rest entire in Sidon, even in the most godless of places. Instead, they came across this woman with this remarkably determined faith. And so now they come down into the Decapolis. And you'll recall, and you'll recall that this is where Jesus and his disciples were greeted by the two demoniacs possessed by a large collection of demons called Legion back in chapter 8. That's the disciples' experience with this region up until this point in Matthew. So this too is a godless place. This is a place where it would seem like Jesus and his disciples might be able to find rest. And yet the same thing happens here that we saw happen when Jesus first withdrew from the jurisdiction of Herod, back in chapter 14. Jesus comes into this region and crowds gather to him, bringing their sick to him. In other words, this supposedly godless Gentile people, they too have heard of what Jesus has done in Galilee. Perhaps they've even heard of what Jesus did with Legion back in chapter 8. And so, like the Canaanite woman, they come flooding out to Jesus with great urgency, bringing Him their sick and pleading with Him to help them. In fact, in verse 30, where it says that they put the sick at Jesus' feet, the word there means something more like they threw them at His feet. So Jesus comes into this region, and the Gentiles, they're so desperate for Jesus' help that they're practically just tossing their sick on the ground in front of Him. There's just tremendous urgency here on display. The people are very eager to accept Jesus. They're demonstrating a very similar kind of faith as the Canaanite woman did in our last passage. And so what does Jesus do? Again, after all, these are Gentiles, right? These are people outside the promises of Israel. Does he ignore them? After all, it's not okay to take the children's bread and give it to dogs, right? Right? No, it is okay to do that. That's what Jesus just established for his disciples with the Canaanite woman. A person gains access into the kingdom, not on the basis of ethnicity or on the basis of external righteousness, but on the basis of faith. And that's what this people is practicing Right here, they're demonstrating faith in Jesus. Tremendous faith in Jesus. The same kind of faith that we saw with the Canaanite woman. And so what does Jesus do? He does the same thing. Note here, He does the same thing that He did with the Israelites back in chapter 14. He heals the sick that are brought to Him. And then not only that, but He repeats the miraculous feeding that we saw there when He fed 5,000 men besides women and children by fighting, by feeding another 4,000 men here besides women and children. And, and, and this is utterly remarkable because not just in, in this miracle is Jesus repeating this incredible feat, but also because of what it signifies when He does this. Again, these are Gentiles. These are people who are glorifying the God of Israel. This is... Not their native God that they're dealing with. They're idolaters who are technically outside of the promises guaranteed to Israel. And yet, the feeding of the 5,000, you will recall, was a sign that pointed back to God's giving of the manna to Israel in the wilderness. That was a miracle that indicated the unique relationship that Israel enjoyed with God. It was given at a time when God was delivering Israel from bondage in order to set them up in their own land so that they could be free to worship Him apart from Gentile interference. That miracle showed them that God was uniquely among them, Israel. And that he would care for them and provide for them. And so they should be careful to do all that God commanded them. Jesus replicates that miracle here. Only this time he does it with Gentiles. He expresses this miracle that communicates fellowship. And by the way, meals in general, that's what they indicated at this time. To eat with someone was to extend fellowship with them. But this is even more true of this miracle, which pointed to the the manna. So Jesus expresses this miracle that communicates fellowship. He he performs this miracle that also communicates provision and care and blessing. He actually feels, again, splachonizomai. We talked about that with the 5,000, this kind of deeply emotional compassion. He feels that for this crowd, and he feeds them as if they were one of his own people. And he does this with Gentiles. This is something the disciples didn't think possible. I mean, if you look here in verse 32, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Am I, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now the disciples should know what can happen next, right? After all, they saw the feeding of the 5,000. They even participated in it. They helped distribute the bread. They know what Jesus can do here. But look at how they respond in verse 33. They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They act like the replication of that that miracle, a repetition of that miracle. They don't think that's even a possibility. Jesus says, I want to feed them, and right away the disciples say, where are we going to get bread to do that? As if Jesus can't do it himself. Do you know why they respond this way? It's because... not because they don't think that Jesus is able to feed this crowd. Yes, Jesus can feed a crowd like this. They know that. But that doesn't mean that they think he will. That's the issue here. They can't imagine Jesus being willing to feed, a, feed the crowd, uh, this crowd of Gentiles, like he fed Israel just a chapter back. After all, these are Gentiles. And the manna, that's for Israel. Sure, it's one thing for a Canaanite's daughter to be healed, but to eat manna? That's not the dogs eating the crumbs that fall under the table. That's the master inviting the dogs up to the table to eat right alongside the children. The disciples don't think that's possible. And yet Jesus does it. He feeds them with the bread. And not only that, but there are seven baskets full of bread left over. The word for basket here, by the way, is different than the word that we encountered for basket back in chapter 14. The word for basket there was uh, kofinos, which referred to a type of basket that Israelites would have used when they were on a journey. Thus, the 12 baskets left over were essentially 12 portion sizes, one for each disciple. Here, there are seven baskets, and the word for basket is spuris which is a larger hamper type of basket that was commonly used in Gentile areas. These are large baskets. So even though there's only seven baskets this time, it would seem as if there's actually more bread left over. In other words, Jesus doesn't just feed this large Gentile crowd, but he does so abundantly. Whereas with the 5,000, there was just enough bread for everyone there, which again harken back to the perfect provision that God gave of bread in the Exodus. Here there's an overabundance of bread. It's an exceedingly rich blessing that Jesus has provided. So again, Jesus doesn't just call the Gentiles up to the table, but he even blesses them richly. And in the end, this is really a pretty powerful eschatological scene taking place here. In the Old Testament, it was said that when the end came, God's kingdom, and God's kingdom was established, there would be this tremendous restoration of the created order that would occur. For example, in Isaiah 35, it says that God uh, will come with vengeance to save Israel. And then verse 5, in the first half of verse 6, it says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That sounds really uh, very much similar to the types of healings that we see Matthew describing here, right? Well, the rest of verse 6 and then verse 7 in Isaiah 35 even continues, saying, For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There's this restoration of natural of the natural order that's going to occur in the wilderness. Places that are barren are going to be made fruitful. That's kind of like what you're seeing here. Here is Jesus out in the countryside. Back in Matthew 14, it said that Jesus was out in the wilderness... And and he had him sit on grass there. Here he's on this mountainside. There's not even mention of grass here. Jesus just directs him to sit down on the ground. This is a barren place. And yet Jesus causes food to multiply in the midst of it. This is what we're seeing take place here. The restorative power of Jesus is on full display. But that's not all. You know how it says that Jesus went up on the mountain to do all of this? And then in verse 31 it talks of this Gentile crowd glorifying the God of Israel. Well, this too is something that the Old Testament said would occur in the end times. For example, Micah 4, 1-2 says... It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So God said that once his kingdom was established, Gentiles would stream to Mount Zion to worship him. Well, Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, but he's on a mountain in the Decapolis. And Gentiles are gathering to him and worshiping the God of Israel as God's Messiah heals the lame, the blind, and the mute. And as he provides abundant food in a barren place. I mean, can you see what's happening here? Here's this just incredible snapshot of the kingdom of heaven. This event is not the fulfillment of those passages, but it's showing what Jesus can and will someday do. His messianic identity is really on full display here. There should really be no doubt who Jesus is according to this passage, right? For our call to worship today, we read from Isaiah 49. In that passage, it says, with reference to the coming Messiah this is verses 5 to 7 of that passage. And it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. God says, That's not enough. It's not enough that you just restore Israel. He says, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to one deeply despised, and listen to this, one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. That's what you see happening here. Jesus is acting as this light to the nations. And this makes it apparent that He is the one who will raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. This is just an awesome display of Jesus' saving power. And now compare this first response, this overwhelming Gentile belief, compare that with the second response that occurs in this passage, which is overwhelming Jewish unbelief. Overwhelming Jewish unbelief. We see this in verse 39 of chapter 15 through chapter 16, verse 4. Matthew says, And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. I'm sorry, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given. To it except the sign of Jonah, so he left them and departed. So after Jesus performs this miracle, he travels into the region of Magadan. It's not entirely clear where Magadan is today, uh, but it appears to have been located in Galilee. So Jesus comes back into Galilee, and the first thing we see happen there is this confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, it, it doesn't take long. Jesus left with his disciples because he knew. Things were about to become hostile in Galilee, and sure enough, he comes back into Galilee, and the Pharisees are practically waiting for him there on the shoreline. So eager are they to attack him. Only this time, they don't come alone. Now, they come with some members of the Sadducees, and that's odd because the Pharisees and the Sadducees they weren't friends. The Pharisees focused worship around obedience to the scriptures. The Sadducees focused worship around the temple sacrifices. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't. These true groups had, had theological differences, and they fought with one another often. They didn't get along. And yet they can both agree that at, the, on, at this point, they can both agree that Jesus is dangerous enough that he needs to be taken care of. The last encounter we saw with Jesus and the Pharisees, there was this delegation that was sent from Jerusalem to question Jesus about defilement. Jesus said that defilement comes from the inside, not from the outside. And then the Pharisees, you'll recall, they just sort of stormed off. And for all we know, they went back to Jerusalem to report what Jesus had said. Well, now they're coming back with some Sadducees in tow. And you can imagine what the Pharisees might have said to them about what Jesus said concerning defilement. And how that would have upset these, this group of religious leaders focused on the temple. Again, these are guys that ran the temple. So, of course, they wouldn't be happy when the Pharisees told them, falsely, by the way, that Jesus was attempting to undercut the whole sacrificial system established by Moses. So the two parties are friends on this occasion. They can both agree that something must be done about Jesus. And so they join forces in order to test him. And the word for test here has the connotation of test with intention of proving false. This isn't a genuine request they're making here. They're attempting to discredit Jesus, they want to destroy him. And they ask Jesus to show them, quote, a sign from heaven. In other words, they don't want Jesus to heal some people or cast out demons. As Jesus pointed out back in Matthew 12, there were plenty of other rabbis who claimed to do that sort of thing. No, they wanted something really spectacular. They want something that really, undeniably, without a shadow of a doubt, proves that Jesus is from God. I mean, they want plagues. They want fire coming down from heaven to consume sacrifices. They want special effects. Or do they? Is that what they really want? After all, they had a prophet named John who told them who Jesus was. They had many other smaller signs that Jesus performed, which they tried to say that he did by the power of Satan. I mean, it wasn't as if they were, they were exactly willing to take the smaller signs for what they were, so is it was any more likely that they would accept some of the really big signs as well. You know, Jesus performed signs from heaven. He calmed the storm in Matthew 8. He fed the 5,000 and walked on water in Matthew 14. He did the special effects. But he also made it clear that he only did these things for those who demonstrated that they were willing to accept the meaning of these signs. The people who recognized what Jesus did in the smaller miracles, those who proved receptive to those miracles, Jesus was willing to show them more. Because those people came with a humble heart. They were teachable. But those who could not accept those things, well, Jesus already said, to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one whose heart is hard, the one who cannot accept the small signs, Jesus has made it very clear they're not going to get the big ones either. In other words, it's not a matter of proof, but a matter of will. The one who's unwilling to accept Jesus, it doesn't matter how much proof he offers, they'll always find an excuse to reject him. Of course, you see this done all the time today. And this is what is happening with the scribes and Pharisees too. Their attempts to discredit Jesus in the smaller things proved that their hearts were the real issue, not the proof. And this is what Jesus explains in verses 2 and 3. He says to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. If you've ever heard the, the rhyme, Red at night, sailors in the light, red morning, sailors warning then you can get a basic sense of what Jesus is saying here. It's the same principle that he's quoting right here. And he says, look, you can, you can read the signs in the skies. And that's a, that's a play on this request for a sign from heaven, by the way. Jesus says, you ask for a sign from heaven. You know, it's funny. You can look up into the sky, and you're able to discern the meaning of those kinds of signs and it 's really the same thing with the kingdom of heaven it 's just like with the signs of the weather, but you 're completely unable to discern the meaning of this. You cannot discern the meaning of the signs of the times and then he repeats what he told them after the blasphemy of the spirit back in Matthew twelve He says, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah and the message that Jesus is sending here is, is loud and clear. Jesus came performing signs, but they rejected those signs out of hand. They couldn't discern the meaning of those signs. And because of that, Jesus told them back in Matthew 12 that the only sign they'd be getting from this time forward was the sign of Jonah, which was this sign not only of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but also of the judgment that would come upon Israel for their rejection of their king. In other other words, there was a point when the evening sky was red. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He was performing signs and wonders openly, but they were unable to discern the meaning of that. And so now judgment is coming. This means that Jesus isn't performing any more signs. In fact, his lack of signs is in and of itself a sign. It tells them that his blessing has been removed from them. And so now Jesus' signs are like the red morning sky. The lack of signs pretends judgment and yet they're completely unable to understand even this. They don't even get that, that that's why Jesus isn't doing signs now. They come asking for a sign from heaven, and Jesus says, Look, you're not getting it. I've already told you, the signs are done. I came proclaiming good things with many lesser signs and wonders, but your hearts were so hard you wouldn't accept those, so I'm not giving you the greater ones, and that is your sign. The only sign I have for you now is a sign of judgment, which means I'm not doing anything for you. But apparently you're so slow of heart that you still don't perceive this. And so you come to me and ask me to perform a sign rather to, than to flee from the coming wrath. So allow me to repeat. You're an evil and adulterous generation. This means that judgment's coming. And the sign that you have for that judgment is the sign of Jonah. Read that sign, he says, and understand. Again, how different this is from what's happening with the Gentiles. The Canaanite woman presumably heard just a little bit about Jesus. And yet she comes to him crying out, Son of David, and refusing to be sent away from him. Jesus moves on to the Decapolis and the people there are practically throwing their sick at Jesus' feet and they're they're so entranced by Jesus that they refuse to leave. They're with him for up to three days. They're there so long that they've run out of food and they're actually in danger of fainting on the way home. So they're getting this remarkably powerful sign from heaven of Jesus' Messianic authority. But then Jesus steps foot back into Galilee And who's waiting for him but the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are ready to attack him. And so what do they get? Nothing. He's not going to perform a sign for them. The Gentiles are feasting on manna. And the children of Abraham are being treated like Ninevites. That, in and of itself, is a sign for Jesus' disciples. It shows them what's coming up on the horizon. Israel... For a period of time. They're about to be passed over. The blessing is going to go out to the Gentiles first. In the very next account. Jesus is going to start talking about his church. It's not Israel that he's going to focus on moving forward. But the church. These are the day of the Lord storm clouds. That Jesus is talking about. And while earlier. Those storm clouds. Pointed to Israel's blessing. Now they foretell wrath. This is absolutely stunning. The Gentiles are able to read the signs of the times and repent and glorify the God of Israel. And now they're about to experience blessing because of that. Whereas the people of Israel, they're completely blind to what's taking place. And so they fail to repent. Now they're about to experience judgment. How is that possible? How can a Canaanite woman Read the signs of the times and understand, while all the brightest and most educated men in Israel cannot. Again, it really shouldn't happen that way, right? So how does this work? We see the answer in the rest of the passage. Verses 5 to 12 say, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves. We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus immediately departs Galilee once again. He goes on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, if he's he's heading to Caesarea Philippi, which is where he'll be in verse 13, that's where we'll see him next. If that's where he's going, then this would put him and the disciples in just about the same spot where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And in this setting, he tells his disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, you can really see the theme of eating and bread flowing throughout this entire section starting back in chapter 14, can't you? Jesus gets away from the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says, look at their leaven, now stay away from it. And look at the disciples' response in verse 7. They begin to discuss how they haven't brought any bread. Think about that. Jesus is not far from where he fed the 5,000, and they think that he must be talking about actual physical bread. That's strange. And Jesus points out that this is strange. He says in verses 8 through 11. Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, if Jesus is with them, then should should they ever care about bread, right? Right? Again, He taught them with the feeding of the 5,000 that He can supply their needs. They should know that bread is a non-issue with Jesus' ministry. And so they should be able to understand that Jesus must be speaking figuratively. But they don't get this. And again, why not? Why don't they get this? It's because in this moment, their faith is faltering. It isn't because they've forgotten what Jesus did per se, it's that they're starting to question his teaching. If you notice here, Jesus starts his answer, O you of little faith. If you recall, that's how he addressed them when they when he calmed before he calmed the storm in Matthew 8. It's how he addressed Peter when Peter tried to walk on the water and then began to doubt and started to sink in Matthew 14. Those were moments when the disciples began to question Jesus' identity before Jesus then proved his identity to them all over again. It's the same thing that's happening here. They're beginning to doubt Jesus, and because they're beginning to doubt the thought of these two miraculous feedings, they don't even enter into their minds. That's what they think that Jesus is talking about. They think he's talking about literal bread. And so Jesus begins by saying, Oh, you of little faith. Now this raises a question, doesn't it? If their faith is faltering, then the question is why? What's making their faith falter? I think you see the answer in what they think Jesus is telling them. They're talking about how they don't have any bread. And so what this means is they think that Jesus is telling them to go out and procure bread. But not the bread of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whatever that means. Maybe Jesus doesn't want them to buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe he doesn't want them to buy bread that's been approved by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Whatever the case, they think that this is a warning against some type of physical bread associated with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's instruction about what they're to go out and procure. It's about literal bread. And what this tells you, if you stop and think about it, what this tells you is that the lesson about defilement didn't really sink in for Jesus' disciples. Or at least they're beginning to question it. Not too long before Jesus told His disciples, not too long before this, right, He told the disciples that it wasn't what's outside that defiles a person, but what's inside that defiles them. Well, here they're thinking that Jesus is warning them about physical bread. And what this tells you is that the disciples haven't completely bought into that lesson yet. After all, why would Jesus warn them about physical bread When it's not what's outside of a person that defiles them, but what's inside. He wouldn't warn them about that, right? It wouldn't make any sense. And yet the disciples think He's talking about that. That's what's on their brain when Jesus talks to them about leaven. They think He's warning them about some kind of external defilement. And what this shows us is that the intimidation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in verses 1-4, through that's getting to them. Jesus goes back into Galilee after this amazing display of his messianic authority. But this time the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there to test Jesus. Again, they're after him because they don't like his teaching about sin and righteousness. You know, Jesus taught this lesson. He leaves and the Pharisees come back with Sadducees who don't like that teaching either. And they're there to test Jesus. And then Jesus leaves with his disciples and warns them about bread. And what do they think he's talking about? They think he's talking about actual bread. They think he's talking about external defilement. What this shows you is that at least at this point in time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were winning. They're influencing Jesus' disciples and they're causing them to lose faith in him. This latest test comes up And then the disciples see the Pharisees and the Sadducees there united against Jesus. I mean, together, these these two groups essentially represented the whole of Israel's religious leadership. And enemies though they are, they're both after Jesus because they think his teaching is wrong. And the disciples come away from that shaken. They're starting to fall into their old way of thinking. And now when Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they they can't even grasp the main sense of his instruction. So Jesus pauses for a moment and he says, wait a minute, why why would you think that I'd be talking about bread? Don't you remember what I did? I can give you bread. And then he repeats his warning and he says, so now I'll say it again, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then, verse 12, the disciples realize Jesus is referring to the teaching of, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus reminds them of who He is and what He can do. He shows them that He wouldn't possibly be talking about physical bread. And as the disciples then wrestle with what Jesus could be talking about, if He's not talking about physical bread, they see the error in their thinking. And they see how the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees has polluted their own minds. And it dawns on them, oh, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's their teaching that he's referring to. Do you get it? Jesus is he's warning about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees because it is that teaching that is corrupting his disciples even in this moment. It's creeping in. And as Jesus sees this teaching sneaking in through the back door, he calls it out and he says, watch out for that. Beware of that leaven. The disciples go, Jesus must want us to get more bread. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't get it. That, that right there, that's what I'm talking about. Watch out for that. And the disciples then see how they miss the meaning of Jesus' lesson on defilement and realize, oh, he means the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is their teaching. And more specifically, it is their hypocritical teaching. That's what Jesus says in Luke 12.1. He tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's teaching, but it's their hypocritical teaching in particular. This teaching that says, clean the outside of the dish, watch out for the defilement that's outside of you, while neglecting every type of internal sin and impurity imaginable. It's what we sometimes call legalism. The focus on external behavior rather than internal righteousness. Righteousness. That's the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this teaching is dangerous because it ultimately points a person away from Jesus. After all, if the problem with my sin is what's outside of me, like if I'm basically a good person who just struggles with bad influences, then I don't need a Savior, do I? If it's something outside of me, that's corrupting me, then that's something I can manage. If that's my problem, then I don't need someone to redeem me. I just need a better set of regulations to restrict the bad influences. If the problem is outside of me, I need rules. I need laws. Not a Messiah. But if my problem is inside of me, if sin is coming out of my heart, that's completely different. I can't manage that kind of a problem because that means I am the problem. I'm the threat that I need to be saved from. I can't rid of myself from the evil influence because I am the evil influence. The enemy is in here. It's inside of me. I'm the root of my own evil. And that means that if I have any hope of being cleansed, then it has to come from a righteousness that's outside of me. In other words, in that sort of a situation, I need a savior. This is the problem with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There is an inherent pride in their brand of righteousness that pointed people away from Jesus' message, not to Him. Legalism essentially tells a person that they're not really that bad. I mean, if you stop to think about it, that's what legalism says. They they just need a little bit of cleaning up, but they're basically a good person. So just control the influences and they'll be fine. And it's this kind of thinking that then fostered, first in the religious leaders and then second among the crowds, this attitude that allowed them both to stand in judgment over Jesus for his failure to conform to their preconceived notions of the Scriptures and reject him, in spite of all the overwhelming evidence that pointed to the contrary. Unfortunately, as Jesus points out here, this teaching is leaven, which means that it spreads, it's incredibly contagious. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, beware. And the, and the command here is in the present tense, which implies this kind of persistent, vigilant watching. It's an incredibly powerful kind of poison, which is why the disciples must be looking for it every single moment. It's sad to say, but that leaven has spread throughout Israel by the time of Jesus' ministry. This message on defilement, saying that it comes from the outside. Not the insight That had become the popular message in Israel at this point. It was so prevalent that even the disciples had a hard time escaping its influence. And this is why the nation couldn't accept Jesus while the Gentiles could. Again, the common denominator in all of Israel's rejection is their religious leaders. They're the ones who always pushed the crowds away from Jesus whenever they were ready to recognize His authority. And they were the ones who also ingrained in Israel this belief about righteousness that hardened them against the truth. The Gentiles didn't have that stumbling block. The Gentiles didn't possess the spiritual pride fostered by legalism. They knew their unrighteousness. They knew their unworthiness. So there wasn't this same need on their part to suppress the evidence that Jesus was providing. They weren't standing in judgment over him. So Jesus could perform a miracle in their sight and they could see it for what it was and rejoice. We must understand that faith was always the stumbling block for these early believers. When Jesus started pointing to salvation by faith, this was hard for these Jewish Christians who had been raised on the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was hard for them to accept that. Even to the humble ones, even to men like Jesus' disciples, this was hard. It smelled of antinomianism, which means it smelled like Jesus didn't care about the law or righteousness. Now, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the truth, in fact, was that he was advocating for a higher standard of righteousness, but it didn't feel this way. When Jesus pushed inward into the heart, it sounded to their ears like he was overturning the law, and this made his message very difficult for even the most humble of Jesus' listeners to understand. They had all become so poisoned by the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees that even the disciples had a hard time getting their heads around what Jesus was saying. The Gentiles didn't have an issue with faith. They didn't have an issue with faith because they hadn't been so corrupted. It was easier for them to accept that message because it was easier for them to understand. And it was easier for them to understand because they didn't have this false thinking about righteousness clouding their thoughts. So they accepted Jesus in large numbers while much of Israel turned away. Matthew's point in in all of this story is to show his Jewish brethren, look, you can't turn away from what Jesus taught about righteousness. Righteousness. That's what his readers would have wrestled with. They were eager to accept Jesus as the Christ, but they were reluctant to abandon their traditional understanding of the law. Like the Galatians, they would have been prone to have a Jesus plus works approach to sanctification. And Matthew is here to tell them, you can't do that. You can't turn away from this definition of righteousness. This impurity is on the inside understanding of righteousness. If you do that, if you turn away from that, you'll ultimately reject Jesus. That's what's happening with the disciples here. They're starting to slip. And it's because Jesus steps in and says, Watch out, that they then regain their footing and keep from falling. The message from Matthew to his readers is the same. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's the same for you today as well. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees don't exercise influence over anyone here in this room today. I doubt that. But they're teaching in the form of religious legalism. That still lives. And it it's just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. What does this teaching look like today? How's it spread? Those are questions that we're going to look at tonight at 6 o'clock. But the main idea is this. Legalism is not a secondary issue. It's not a secondary issue. How we define righteousness, this is not just sort of harmless in-house debate amongst Christians. It is a spiritually vital issue. Listen, how you define sanctification, that is inevitably tied to your understanding of justification. How we define what it is that God asks of us, and how we are to therefore grow in Christ, that goes back to where our real problem is in God's eyes, where we think that problem is. So if you get this issue wrong, and if you don't shipwreck your faith in the process, you'll at least fail to see Jesus. This is where a wrong understanding of sin goes. It will blind you to who Jesus is. Just as it's causing the disciples to forget Jesus in this passage. So whenever you discuss righteousness, you must always keep this question in the forefront of your mind. Where is my real problem? Where is my real problem? And then you must remember, my real problem is not outside of me. It's never outside of me. It's inside. I'm the problem. If you can keep that thought in front of you, that, that thought will always lead you back to Christ. The true reality of your sin reminds you that you need a Savior. So if you can remember that your problem is the sin inside of you, it will always lead you back to Christ. Not only in terms of salvation, believing on Him in faith, but in terms of your sanctification as well. You're going to constantly lean on Him, constantly rest on Him, constantly look for Him to provide the victory. Like the Canaanite woman, this idea will remind you that you don't belong at the table. It will remind you that you are unworthy of God's kingdom. And that will cause you to, like her, desperately cling to Christ in faith. Like the Gentile crowds of this passage, it will cause you to eagerly rush to Christ, knowing that He is your only hope. And then not only that, but it will lead you to linger at His feet long enough that you will get to see Him reveal Himself in impressive and amazing ways. The way you will see Christ for who He really is is not through pride and self-righteousness, but by humility and faith. So beware of the legalism. Eleven of the scribes and Pharisees.